Hello and welcome to episode 51 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. My name is Dan Francesco. I'm the deputy editor of Cellside Technology, and today we have a very special guest. I'm joined by the newly appointed uh, president and CEO of NASDAQ, Adina Friedman. Adina, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so I should mention this up top. You're in rarefied air because you are the first non-Waters employee uh, woman to appear on the Waters Wavelength podcast. Really? That I'm very honored. Yeah, yeah. So I know you might be the, you know, the first uh, woman CEO of, you know, the exchange in the U.S. stuff, but this is far more important than that. I, I agree. This is great. <laughs> so I think to start, it'd be good to talk a little bit about your overview. So you were appointed the president and CEO, CEO of NASDAQ starting in the new year. Uh, before that, you served as the COO of NASDAQ and the president um, when you had joined in 2014. Before You had a brief stint in the Carlisle Group, and then you were with NASDAQ for a while. So maybe talk a little bit. I know when you first joined NASDAQ in 93, yeah, is that right? Yeah, that's right. What, how did you first get involved in the, in the firm? Sure. So I came to NASDAQ right out of business school. And at the time, I um, really wanted to get into product management, but I really wanted to get into the financial industry. So it was a little bit of a niche. <laughs> and NASDAQ just happened to have trading products that they looked at as complete P&Ls. And when I started at NASDAQ, I started by writing business plans for their kind of ancillary trading products and how to kind of grow their businesses. So it was a perfect opportunity for me to do everything I wanted to do early in my career. Mm -hmm. And then talk about coming back. So you have the, the three-year stint as the CFO at the Carlisle Group, and then you returned to NASDAQ in 2014. What was that like after having spent, what, you know, tw 20 years or a, a long time at NASDAQ to then kind of return? What was it like? What were maybe some of the big differences you saw, some of the similarities? Sure. Well, I was I was at NASDAQ for 17 years and then went to Carlisle for three years as a CFO and helped them um, go public, um, which was really a wonderful experience and a great place. When I came back to NASDAQ, though, I realized in the, making the decision to come back, I realized that it was I, I enjoyed being a CFO, but I found that I really liked running businesses better. Um, and being kind of the, the decision maker and taking the risk to uh, to run the P&L. So I was really excited when NASDAQ invited me back as the president. And NASDAQ had changed a lot in three years. And the reason for that is that when I left NASDAQ, we were really learning to be a global financial technology company, and we had some global operations. When I came back because of the acquisition of the Thomson Reuters business, we had turned into a really great uh, global financial technology company, and we had a much broader suite of uh, businesses outside the U.S. So that's what I want to. That's one of the reasons why we have you on. We want to talk about being a technology publication. I know you've said, you know, recently right off the bat that you consider Nasdaq a global fintech company. So we want to talk about fintech. Sure. Um, the first one right off the bat is something I know you guys are very interested in. It's something we're very interested in. I think the industry overall is interested in artificial intelligence, machine learning. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different use cases, a lot of different areas you can go with AI. The thing that intrigues me the most when you're, that you guys are doing in your space is around holistic market surveillance because I mm -hmm. think that's really interesting. And I think it's a really strong use case for AI. You kind of hear so much about front office use cases, but for you guys kind of overseeing the markets, talk a little bit about your experiences, your use cases with AI and machine learning um, on the market surveillance side. Sure. So I would agree with you. I think that machine learning is a perfect, there's a perfect application for it in looking at ways to reduce risk. 
and surveillance, market surveillance is obviously a risk management um, area. And what we what we found is both in terms of looking at some of the the ways that we can generate alerts on the actual trading data and the trading information, and that's what I'll call structured data. We also are looking at how we can leverage machine intelligence in terms of the unstructured data of communications within the firm. So an e-coms compliance package that has uh, natural language processing and machine intelligence allows a firm to look at intent to do something. So they can basically find intent within written communications or recorded communications that then allow them to then look at that and compare it against actual trading behavior and say, well, do they turn the intent into action? And we now are providing a holistic solution that incorporates the e-coms compliance piece with the, the market and trade surveillance piece. How, where are you in terms of the implementation of machine learning and AI with your uh, holistic surveillance programs? So we just launched what I would call the light version of it. So it's basically a, a basic version of tying the two capabilities together. Just as a little bit of a background, NASDAQ is the leading provider of market surveillance technology to, to the broker-dealer industry as well as to the exchange industry. So we already had have embedded over 100 broker-dealer clients in dozens of markets. Um, but with this new e-coms compliance capability, it does allow us to extend our capabilities within the firms. And so we launched the light version at the end of last year. We're launching a much more holistic, complete version this year. And we have firms um, signed up and doing some POCs with us right now. I, I like it. I think it's a great idea. I think it's a great use. You know, I wrote an opinion piece about kind of the robots saving us from the robots. Uh, what What critics have said or what I've heard some people say is that so you look at Reg AT and the source code, you know, issue that they're having, and the fact that people are worried. They go to a regulator, they get the source code as part of, you know, you filing your source code, and then they can pop out, bounce out to a private firm and kind of use that against the firm. Are there any concerns? And this isn't specific to Nasdaq, but as exchanges start using AI and machine learning and that code to kind of surveil the markets, that someone, if they left the exchange, could then go to a private firm and say, listen, this is how they're scanning. This is how we could get, kind of get around that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that the first thing is that we have a lot of different alerts that we create. We're always enhancing them. We're always making sure that we're staying ahead of the bad guys in mm -hmm. terms of the types of alerting that we do. So while there might be a static knowledge of some of the stuff we have done, we're constantly making sure that we're staying ahead of the competitors and we're generating new alerts all the time. Um, I think that the other thing is that it's really important that you have the most sophisticated technology managing your risks because of the fact that there is such sophisticated technology out there creating the risk. Mm -hmm. um, and it is, I think you have to be able to balance out um, that that issue. And so therefore, the more sophisticated you can get in managing your risk, the more the less likely you'll be susceptible to people who are using it against you. Sure. Let's switch gears to blockchain, everybody's favorite technology of 2016. As we move into the new year, I know that at the end of last, at the end of 2015, on New Year's Eve, you guys issued a private securities transaction via Link. Right. So talk now about moving into 2017, the use cases, the implementations you see blockchain and distributed ledger technologies with NASDAQ. Sure. So I think that, that we've been focused on in 2015 and 16 is proving out the technology itself and making us understand how you can apply it and doing some experimentation both in the NASDAQ private market um, with, uh, e with basically e-voting technologies. And then also, but we've decided last year to really – 
embrace the blockchain in terms of embedding it into the market infrastructure next generation system that we're launching and providing out to all of our market technology clients. So another little known fact about NASDAQ is that we provide the technology that powers 85 other markets around the world in terms of trading, clearing and settlement, risk management and surveillance. So um, so we've basically taken our next generation system and embedded blockchain capability across the entire messaging layer and the foundation of what we're what we offer. And that allows then for firms as they're ready to commercialize the blockchain and really embed it into their solutions, we're there as the, as the provider of that. We are blockchain um, neutral, meaning we can integrate the chain blockchain, which is um, a company that we've um, specifically invested in, but we can also integrate Hyperledger or Ethereum and others into what we offer out to our clients. How do you see overall with the industry blockchain kind of shaking out we saw at the end of the year there were a couple moves with you know firms are part of consortiums leaving consortiums and kind of a couple, couple people wondered is kind of the hype starting to settling do you see it kind of you know an ebb and flow of there was a lot of hype and this can kind of solve everything and now it's kind of settling down in terms of okay we see exactly the points that we can hit it yeah i, I and actually it's that's funny that you say that because we were looking at this great chart that um, an outside firm had built that shows like the hype of new um, innovation. Mm-hmm. It, it's called the innovation um, innovation life cycle. Mm-hmm. And you start with just early investment, and then you get into this big hype moment when everyone's like, oh, my God, this is going to save the world. Right. And then you start to go into kind of a little bit of a, um, a mode of cynicism of, well, maybe it's not actually going to save the world that much. Yeah. But they start then you start to realize what the real applications are going to be. And you then get into commercialization mode. Mm-hmm. And I would say that we're coming into that world right now with the blockchain where people are realizing they're focusing in on how can it actually make a difference? Where can it re- really reduce risk? Where can it help them limit, you know, um, reduce some of their clearing capital obligations and other things? Where can it really help in terms of creating a better record of ownership? And you're going to start to see it move into more of a commercial state. I would say over the next two years, you'll start to see people really starting to try to figure out how to make or ha- figuring out and implementing commercial solutions. Where do the regulators fall into that whole piece? How, when does that kind of come in and how do you, you know, innovation with regulation is always tough because you want to make sure you're compliant, but especially with something that's potentially as impactful as blockchain, how do you kind of go about things knowing that eventually the regulators are going to step in and say, okay, this needs to be done or this needs to Mm -hmm. be done? Well, I do think that the regulators need to be a part of the dialogue for sure, because as you move away from the private markets, where I think that there's some really good early applications for the blockchain today in a very unregulated space, and you move into the regulated markets, then the regulators need to get as comfortable as all of the market participants and the exchanges are that this is, in fact, a risk management solution. And I would argue that blockchain is a massive risk management solution. It provides them better information, um, better ownership information, and it, it um, at least in theory, will reduce potential time to settlement, which will reduce risk in the markets in the system itself. And for all of that, you'd argue that regulators should be happy to embrace it, but they're going to want to understand how do you um, make make sure you're managing the risk, any sort of um, security risks around it, and making sure that the data is secured and, and um, is being used for the right reasons? Mm-hmm. Let's switch gears again now to extended life order. I know that's an order type that was announced over the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe, did you guys file with SEC right before Thanksgiving? Yeah, right. Uh, right at, I thought it was right around the end of October. Okay, mm-hmm. so what's the status now of ELO? 
Um, so we are on file with the SEC, and it may have been in November. Um, we are on file with the SEC for the extended life order. What we're doing is we are phasing it in, and the, the filing that we've put with the SEC is to implement the um, ELO for retail orders. And then we're going to work with the industry to understand how that impacts the, the, the book and how it impacts priority on the book. Um, and then we'll look at how we then would implement it for institutional orders. Um, the, the, we've been coding to it, so we're ready, we'll be ready whenever the regulators are ready to approve it in terms of being able to implement it. We've been having active dialogue with all the firms about what it means and how we'll, how we'll put it into place. And it's, uh, I think it's a really interesting innovation in market structure because what we're trying to do is make sure we're saying for customers who are not time sensitive that have natural orders that they want to get done, they should have a priority within the book to be able to get that done against orders that are just um, what we call latency sensitive orders. And, uh, and that's what we really are trying to achieve with ELO. I know that Bob Greifel has, has talked about this when it was first announced, but a lot of people see it and the first thing they think of is IEX speed bump. I know there are differences. Maybe explain to those that aren't aware or would like to hear what, how is this different from IEX speed bump? Right. So I think the first thing is that it's not a prescriptive element of the market structure that impacts everything that comes in the door. It is a essentially a feature of the market that allows certain participants to be able to execute a certain way and give them a benefit that they want and based on whether or not they want it. So it's a feature. It's something that they can choose to be a part of or not. Um, I think the second thing is that it's integrated into a much larger pool of liquidity. So we are we are implementing this across the NASDAQ market, which is a much, much deeper and more liquid pool of liquidity, whereas IEX currently is somewhere in the range of, you know, between 1% and 2% market share in any given day. So it's a very, very different implementation when you're impacting a much broader set of the liquidity as opposed to putting a speed bump into a small a small venue. Um, and I think that the, the last thing is that we've been taking in a lot of feedback from firms as to the fact that they want choice. They want to have different ways that they can execute orders. Price time isn't necessarily the best way to do everything, but they want it to be integrated into uh, a price time book. So we're pretty excited about what we've been able to do here. I understand what you're saying with the, the size of IEX compared to NASDAQ. Would you say, though, that the once the approval came down, that was an influence? Because you see the Chicago Stock Exchange did the liquidity taking access to light pretty, pretty quickly after IEX was approved. You guys have ELO. Would you say that was an influence at all, or was this something you guys had in the pipeline? So the first thing is that several years ago, we tried to implement something similar to the speed bump in one of our smaller venues. In Philly, right. Um, and the SEC basically refused to move forward with it. And they said, well, no, you can't intentionally put a speed bump in your market. Mm -hmm. um, so, so we were pretty... Uh we were pretty disappointed in how the SEC went about approving IEX in terms of it not going through a normal process that it would have otherwise gone through if it were us asking for the same thing. Having said that, I think what, what um, IEX did do is open the door to uh, some level of the potential for innovation and market structure under the realm of Reg NMS in a way that the SEC has not been open to it in the past. So if they're going to approve it for one, they got to start looking at other structures that are legitimate, um, legitimate opportunities to 
be different than just pure price time. And so they have opened up the door. And so ELO was created on the back of the IEX approval, but really not because of IEX as much as it's because the SEC has now opened the door for potential innovation. Right. The door is open. You're going to step through it. We are. Uh, I think that gets to the bigger point of just kind of the evolution of exchanges and the evolution of the, the market in general. You come at an interesting time. I spoke to Bob for a cover story we did back in April or May, and uh, you know he talked about when he first joined that he really had to save a sinking ship, that he was it was a dire time for NASDAQ. NASDAQ's obviously in a lot better position now, but you have an interesting time. You know, we, we mentioned IEX, but also you have the CBOE and BATS merger. You have the potential for the LESC and uh, Deutsche Börse deal. Um, John Jacobs, a former NASDAQ executive VP, and I believe he's a vi- an advisor, mm-hmm. said in an interview, he said that um, while Bob needs to save a sinking ship and kind of turn around, you need to redirect it. What are – how – how would you classify that you need to redirect NASDAQ or what do you need to do? What are your biggest goals coming in now to this role? Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing is I've been working very closely with Bob for over 10 years. It was a 14 year span, but I was gone for three of them. Um, And so I know I was very involved in the development of the strategy and the execution of our strategy over the last 14 years here at NASDAQ. And over the last two and a half years, he and I have been working very closely together to make sure we are steering the, the, the organization the right way. I would say that redirection is an overstatement. I think that as we continue to look at the opportunity for technology to be a huge driver in the capital markets and a potential disruptor in the capital markets, we want to be that disruptor. We have a great position to be able to do that because of both the expertise we have in running markets ourselves, as well as the ability for us to provide technology out to thousands of corporate clients and hundreds of broker dealers and dozens of marketplaces. So we have this we have this unique position and role in the markets to help drive economic growth through technology. And we want to make sure that we are leveraging every element of technology um, and innovation that's occurring in the marketplace to serve the capital markets going forward. Is that how do you I guess how do you see uh, exchanges and exchange operators really evolving over the next five years? Because we're seeing consolidation. We're seeing a bigger focus on technology. What do you think are going to be the biggest um, you know, pillars of exchanges kind of going forward in these next five years? Well, I think that NASDAQ has done, in my opinion, the best job of diversifying our business to serve a broader role within the capital markets than other exchange companies. So we have a lot of different engines, like our surveillance business, like our market tech business or corporate solutions business to grow and expand our role. And we also, because we are, um, we've done a great job, frankly, of creating great technology for our own markets and then therefore offering it out to other clients. We're seen as kind of the, the, the natural place for people to come if they need a technology solution for the capital markets. And I think that we've done a really nice job of positioning ourselves that way, whereas a lot of the other exchanges have diversified, but they stay, they've stayed much closer to the core of just being a transaction processing engine with some with you know pre-trade and post-trade capabilities around it. The other area that I think all of the exchanges are focused on though is in the data space and um, we've done um, a lot over the years to make sure that we deliver real value to our clients in the market data area and the index area and more and more exchanges are getting more engaged in the data space as well. What area of an exchange do you feel like is most apt to be disrupted will look the most different than it looks now five years from now, 10 years from now? Is it the data space? I know you used to run the data business at NASDAQ. Is it the, you know, you talk about how your technology runs on a lot of other exchanges. Is it the outsourcing? What area is, you know, five years, a decade from now, are we going to look back and say, I can't believe exchanges operated that way in that particular section? 
I think that's a great question. It's actually a question that we are sitting down and talking about on a regular basis to understand the the influence that technology is having on every element. So you could argue, is it the cloud? Is it machine intelligence? Is it blockchain? Is it quantum computing? What's going to be the thing that most changes the space, the end, the industry? And I think all of those things are going to have a significant um, impact and on an influence on different parts of the industry. So I w I'm not going to place my bet on any one of those four. <laughs> I'm going to say that we're looking at and investing in all of them to make sure that we can serve our clients the right way. We're we're, we're running short on time, so before we before I let you go, you know we always like to talk about some non fintech topics. And I know doing a little research, you are a black belt in Taekwondo. I am. So yes. is that something you started as a child, a little bit later on in life? What would, when did that passion, when did that hobby begin? Sure. Well, my, um, I have two boys, and uh, they're now in college, but they started taking Taekwondo when they were four and six. And the studio is open to adults and children, so we would go and sit there and watch our kids do Taekwondo. And as they got a little bit older, they were allowed to go into the quote-unquote adult class. Mm -hmm. And so once they got to an age where they could go to those classes, we said, you know, my husband and I were like, well, why don't we do it too? You know, we're sitting <laughs> here for an hour. We might as well right. join. Sure. And uh, so he and I started – he started taking it first, and then I took it a couple of years later. And three of the four of us have become black belts. My older son ended up going way into baseball and, and moved away from Taekwondo. But we all are black belts, and I've been doing it now for eight or nine years and loving it. It's great. It's a great discipline. I think that's the best way to look at it. When you started, when your kids started joining the adult class, were you ever matched up against them in a, in a match or training no, or anything like we, that? They don't allow um, families to spar against each other. Because I was going to so say, a little, oh, you didn't clean your then, room? So you do this thing where it's called free sparring, and you go just grab a partner and spar. Mm -hmm. Every now and then, my husband and I or my son and I would end up together, and the, and the teacher would break us apart. Because I don't think it's healthy to spar <laughs> your children or your husband, for that matter. Do, so. do you still practice Taekwondo today? I do, but I, I only am able to go essentially once a week at this point. Um, I do other things. I do kickboxing um, and uh, spinning and yoga, but I do Taekwondo about once a week. Okay, so a big, big fight fan, you know, with kickboxing, Taekwondo. Yep, yep. Do you watch UFC or anything like that? Or you? I am not a UFC fan. I am not. That's over the top. Um, I, I, my husband and I have gone to a couple of boxing matches in the day, um, but I'm, I'm much more... Um, I'm interested in it for the discipline and um, and and the capability. Like I like to know that I could defend myself if I needed to, but I'm not there to looking at it like looking for a fight or anything like that. Have you? I mean, God forbid. Have, have there been a time where you've had to kind of break out the black belt and, and show it off? No, <laughs> thank goodness, no. All right, well, let's hope that let's hope that never happens. Be aware if you step into <laughs> Nina's office to uh to for a deal or, or something or a merger, you're gonna have to deal with the the black belt of Taekwondo. <laughs> well, Nina, listen, I I really appreciate you taking the time. This was great to to hear more and um, congratulations on the role, new role and best of luck going forward. But thanks for coming on today. Thank you so much. It was great being here. Yeah.